their wars, and then there are winners of the wars, and they set the rules. And then you begin a new cycle. And in that beginning of that new cycle, typically a period of peace and prosperity, nobody wants to fight the winner of the war. They have the power, they're dominant. And the cycle begins again. Like in many cases, you wipe out the debts in that period, you wipe out a lot of things, you create new rules. And if it's done well, like we had 1945, and you take the 50s and the 60s and so on, and you keep going, um, you have peace and prosperity and you have in the United States, and but it's also true in other countries. You have cohesiveness, your productivity, and it's the best part of the cycle. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Ray Dalio. Ray is the founder, co-chief investment officer, and co-chairman of Bridgewater Associates, which is a global macro investment firm as the world's largest hedge fund. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Principles, Life, and Work. And his latest book, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail, was released in November. He has written many influential papers on everything from China to populism to debt cycles. He is an avid student of economic history and public policy, an innovator of some industry-changing approaches to investing, an innovative philanthropist, and a deep-sea explorer. This is my second podcast episode with Ray, and if you would like to hear more about his upbringing, early years founding Bridgewater, and much else, you can find our first episode linked in the description. Ray, welcome back to the podcast. I always learn something new when we talk, so it's a pleasure to have you back. You just published a new book, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail. This is a very important book, quite readable, and very thought-provoking. I highly recommend it. We previewed some of the book's ideas on our last podcast, but I'm looking forward to doing a deeper dive today. So let's begin. Ray, what motivated you to write this book? Well, there were three things that were happening that didn't happen in my lifetime before, so I needed to go back before that. Uh, my experiences over the last 50 years or so of investing is that the, the big surprise has always happened because of things that didn't happen in my lifetime, but happened before, like the Great Depression. My studying that helped me anticipate the 2008 financial crisis. So the three big things that were happening, I did this as an internal study, and then it became a book, but the three big things that were happening are the large creation, enormous creation, of debt and the printing of money to monetize it with zero interest rates, that large printing of money. So naturally financial, I needed to understand that and I wanna go back cycles. The second, the great internal conflict, the development of populism, the largest wealth and income gaps since the thirties and the clashes over that. And the third, was the rising of a great power to challenge the existing great power in the form of rising of China to challenge the United States because Russia was never an economic competitor. 
China is a big competitor. So they're they're changing the world order. Last world order started in 1945 after World War II, and that's the American world order, and that's happening. So those three things, last time they happened was the 30s. And then with the financial part, I wanted to see the rises and declines of reserve currencies. So I needed to go back about 500 years. Now, 500 years sounds like a long time, but it really isn't in terms of these cycles. So I started 500 years ago, and then I went through that, and I saw that the same things happened over and over again for logical cause-effect relationships. So that's why I did it. Then people that I was speaking with, really partially to learn, like people from Henry Kissinger and so on, who you know said, you have to put this out. And so that's how it became a book. And I want to really go into some of those things in more detail in a bit. But talk about the perspectives you bring to these issues that might be ignored by historians or, or academics. Well, I'm a global macro investor. So I have to understand macro and I've got to be practical. I don't look at things as optimistic or pessimistic. I just have to be accurate. And I've had a lot of time betting on that. And I also have to be objective and measure things. So you see throughout the book that there are measures of these forces. So it's subjective. And then there are building models from that. So that's different. Most, you know, Larry Summers, I guess, said, you know, history is too important to be left to historians who more do wonderful jobs of telling the stories but as far as forecasting what's going to happen next year or the year after and betting on it, that's not what they do so well. What you do, what you've done here is what I've watched you do in investing is you look at many cases and you look at them very clinically, very objectively, very scientifically, and you analyze them. And so that just takes an enormous amount of work. It's not something that can be done quickly or easily. Well, I'm lucky to have, you know, great research staff, and, but that's exactly right. Like, I have to be like a doctor who has seen many cases. And then what I do is I look at all those cases, many, many cases, and I see how they all have transpired, what caused them to go from one stage to another. And then I plot the archetypical one, the sort of the average. Then I study the deviations around them. And they explain the cause-effect relationship. Doesn't mean that history will uh, should necessarily repeat. However, like a disease that progresses or doesn't progress, there are cause-effect relationships that take it from one step to another. And understanding those is really important. So that's the way I do it. Yeah, well, it's very interesting. Uh, Mark Twain had that great line which says, history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? Now, you made the comment a few minutes ago that you're not a pessimist or an optimist, you're a realist, you just look at the facts. But your book identifies some very alarming risks. And I agree, you're not a pessimist, but has writing this book made you more of a pessimist? Yes. I mean, in that, if I take these three big forces and see how they lead from one step to another. You know, it's like watching the same movie over and over again. I know what that is like. I also want people to know that, 
because I have a you know, principle, if you worry, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. And what I mean by that is, if you worry about the things, the financial piece, the internal conflict piece, which is a threat to our system, democracy, and could become conflict, and you look at the external piece, and you watch those and how they've transpired, I think that that's the best protection against those things not happening. Yep. There's nothing worse than being blindsided and not being prepared. The way you avoid risks is to anticipate them, the worst possibilities. Now, we're going to drill down in a minute on the three things you've identified, which are the fiscal and financial excesses, the social dysfunction and polarization, and the rise of China. But before doing that, I'd like you to put them in a historical context, because as you said, you've gone back 500 years in looking at currencies, and you studied other events which have similar features to these three modern phenomena. So talk a bit about a few of the historical cases and what you learned from them. So we're going to start by looking back, and then we're going to go and talk about what's happening today. The same cycle happens over and over again. And here's how it is. There's a war. It could be an internal war or an external war, civil war, uh, that changes the order, the world order of the domestic war, right? So 1945, there are wars. And then the, there are winners of the wars. And they set the rules. And then you begin a new cycle. And in that beginning of that new cycle, typically a period of peace and prosperity, because nobody wants to fight the winner of the war. They have the power. They're dominant. And the cycle begins again. Like in many cases, you wipe out the debts in that period. You wipe out a lot of things. You create new rules. And if it's done well, like we had, 1945, and you take the 50s and the 60s and so on, and you keep going, you have peace and prosperity, and you have in the United States, and but it's also true in other countries. You have cohesiveness, your productivity, and it's the best part of the cycle. And there's a cycle that's part of it, which is a capitalism cycle in which all the great empires were, were capitalist empires. What I mean is the Dutch invented capitalism. What I mean is the first stock and the first stock market created resources and entrepreneurship that allowed them to have that stock market and, that, and capitalism that helped them. But capitalism creates larger wealth gaps because it distributes income and wealth unevenly, naturally. So you get larger wealth gaps. And with that, you also have systems that people feel are not fair and actually are not fair in terms of equal opportunity. If you're lucky enough to have a parent who has money, you're probably going to get a better education, go to a better school and have those things. And it's a matter of unfair competition. Also through that whole period, debts rise relative to incomes. And so what you see is as it rises, these things happen. And then also the place that's successful becomes more expensive. And naturally people work less hard and enjoy their lives more. 
So there's less investment and more consumption. And naturally, at the same time, competitive countries and businesses that could do it cheaper and better start to become competitive. And that diminishes the competitiveness. For example, in the cycle, the Dutch had their competitive advantage. They, they invented 25% of all inventions in the world at the time. But one of the most important was ships that could go around the world and take resources and trade. And that made them the richest country. And with that, they also brought their currency. And so as they travel around and they become the largest trading countries, they bring their currency and they naturally develop their military to support that. So you see that as it becomes a reserve currency, like the United States dollar is, others want to hold it because that's the currency that they can spend. And so they buy bonds or they buy cash. That's what reserves are. And that's what we call the exorbitant privilege when countries reach that stage, that they, the exorbitant privilege of having a reserve currency, but that gets them deeper into debt because they can borrow easily. And so those ingredients, the combination of debts rising, larger wealth gaps, that reduce competitiveness and so on, begin to affect its competitive where the other power is, is then rising. And naturally, over the period of time, when those things worsen, there's a greater amount of internal conflict as well as external conflict. So well, larger wealth gaps and worse finances create internal conflicts. And also the decreased competitiveness creates worse finances. And the emerging country creates the challenges. And then there's a conflict. And so that's why you tend to see internal conflicts and external conflicts happen around the same time. That's when there's the period of greatest weakness, when you have a lot of internal conflict, bad finances, and then there's an external power challenging this. Now, this has always happened repeatedly. So it was apparent, but I could take you back. That's what happened, let's say, in the 1800s the 1800s, there's the development of uh, capitalism and that provided opportunities to create people, uh, creating wealth in the industrial revolution. They could get capital and they could be inventive and they created the industrial revolution. And the industrial revolution created great wealth and great wealth disparity. So we called it the Gilded Age in the United States or Belle Epoque in, in Europe and so on. And then they became big wealth gaps and decadence and resentment. So when you turn from 1900, you start to see those wealth gaps cause the resentments and financial problems, the panic of 1907 and so on. And then you lead to you know, World War I and the cycle of World War II. And between basically 1910 and 1945, you wiped out almost all, all wealth through lots of reasons, inflation, actual destruction, and so on, and conflict. And then you begin a new world order, which is in 1945. And so I'm just taking you through, let's say the last 200 and some odd years pretty quickly. But if you go back to the Dutch, 
and you go to the British and so on. That's the pattern that happens over and over again, not because it's not just a pattern that happens. It is because a certain set of circumstances necessitates the next step. For example, here today in the United States and around the world, you needed, you have a lot of debt relative to GDP and you needed to get money out. And so you needed to send checks. There's a demand for money, a lot of demand for money, and there's not enough money. So when the coffers are empty, you have to print the money. Central banks have got to print the money, and then it passes through the system in that way. That's what we need. So now I want to talk about each of these phenomena today and drill down. So let's talk about the current economic environment. In 2021, more than $16 trillion of global government debt was issued with negative interest rates or very low interest rates. An extraordinary amount of new debt will soon need to be sold to finance the deficits, right? Yeah. And what economic risks should we anticipate in this environment? So let's talk about this. Then we'll talk about the economic disparities, wealth disparities, populism, extremism, and the rise of China. So a little bit more about what's happening today in terms of these excesses in fiscal and finances. What happens is that there was the stimulation. Different people have different views of the need of it. It needed to happen a lot. Maybe it happened more or less than you would like to happen, but a lot of checks needed to go out and did go out. And then there was the printing of money with low real rates. In other words, you're not compensated. But if you're holding debt, if you're holding cash, money market funds, you are not compensated. You can't be compensated because it would produce too high of a return. So mechanistically, the interest rate must be a lot below the inflation rate and must be a lot below the nominal GDP growth rate to deal with all of that debt. And the way that that happens, because you can't have a balance for its various reasons, is that there's the printing of money and with a lag, that produces inflation. So we're in a, in a transition now where inflation didn't exist really and inflation psychology didn't exist, but we're given all this money and people start to think they're getting richer. You don't get in real buying power. A society cannot get richer by increasing the amount of money and credit that it could only get richer by producing more real things. But you produce a lot and you don't yet have the inflation. And with a lag, you start to have the inflation. And it starts to also change how people think about their bonds and their cash. And because most investors look at their returns in nominal dollars, in other words, the number of dollars, not in inflation adjusted terms. But when they start to see inflation accelerating and they lose that, then they're inclined to sell more bonds or get out of that and move. So what we've seen now is all that money that comes in, it's distributed to everybody. Everybody's got oodles more money and uh, investors do, individuals do, and so on. 
and they have an ability to borrow at hardly any interest rate. In fact, interest-only loans are quite popular. In other words, you have hardly any interest rate, and you don't have to pay back your principal anytime soon. So you basically have that kind of free money, and that free money then drop, does what you see in, in the financial markets and in real estate and in wages and so on. And then that stage of the cycle begins to get people focused in on that, and you go to the next stage where they could be selling. And so that's where we are. Because that imbalance that you refer to, you know, there's a, there's a deficit, so that equals the new amount of bonds that have to be sold. But if you got also the selling of debt, you have more bonds that have to be sold. And that means that either interest rates rise, but that would shut things off, and, and that can't happen. So the government, the Fed, central banks have got to print more money to put a cap on the rates. And that creates that self-reinforcing cycle. So it's mechanics. You know, you, know you have to have uh, a very, very low interest rates relative to inflation, but investors who are holding that don't like it, and that produces the dynamic. Right. And so this doesn't end in a good place because there's no example in history of any country losing its fiscal strength and continuing to be a great power, right? Buying power is key. Yeah. And buying power either comes from earning it, earning more than you're spending, or from borrowing it. And if you're borrowing it, you can't sustain that. Yeah. In you either pay it back in hard dollars or you monetize it and pay it back with inflation. And in either case, the person who's holding those things doesn't want it anymore and the dynamic continues. Right, yep. So now let's talk about this political extremism, social dysfunction that we see, you know, increasingly in the United States in terms of the polarization, but around the world. Talk a little bit about this and, uh, and, and how you're viewing this, Ray. Well, uh, as I say, naturally, as part of the big cycle, the wealth gaps increase, the perceived fairness of that diminishes. And when you have financial problems, so populism of the left and populism of the right, which means, you know, more extremism with also the view that I will fight for you. That changes. It's no longer we will compromise. It's if you see greater polarity through all the cases, you see you want fighters for your cause. And that makes more the movement to the extremes because they're the ones who get chosen. Yes, I want the guy to fight for me. And then you have to pick a side and fight for it because that's what happens. And that greater extremism produces the lack less reasonableness in terms of rule of law and so on. Uh, when the causes that people are behind are more important to them than the system, the system is in jeopardy. So your book deals with some very scary possibilities. 
Civil War is something that happened in 1861 in America. You know, that's ancient history to most of us and unthinkable for most of us in today's America. But you suggest that this is a risk we should take seriously. As you look at these possibilities, what is the worst reasonable possible outcome? And, and then we'll talk about what we need to do to minimize the risk that political extremism will sabotage our democracy. But one of the things you write about is when civil war occurs in countries, most people in that country, you know, if you're going a decade or so before, had never seen that as a real possibility. It always comes as a surprise. So talk a bit about extremism and the extreme of extremism. Well, to start with maybe more of the more probable, right? I think there's much too high a probability that in the 2024 elections, uh, neither side will accept losing. Let's say if we start there. Well, let's start in 2022. In 2022, in each of the political parties, there is a battle between the extremes and the moderates in those parties. And there's a tendency for the extremes to win in those parties because they are the people who will fight for the constituency on either of those sides. So you tend to move the party to greater extremes. And we want fighters. We don't want compromisers. And so that happens. And then you come to the 2024 election, and it's entirely possible that neither party will accept losing. You're moving more to a win-at-all-cost domestic situation. So then it becomes power. It's not the Constitution. It's not the rules. It's like when we were looking at sanctuary cities. You know, you could have the federal government give orders and the, and the state or local government don't. And simultaneously, you're having people move geographically. History has shown that they tend to cluster with their kind. So you'll see, let's say, movements from one state to another because of what that state is like. And let's say from New York, Illinois, and California, you know, to places like Texas and Florida, not just because of taxes, because of, but also different kind of values kind of thing. And you see that kind of a movement. That traditionally causes a hollowing out because if rich people leave or companies leave, the tax base in those countries where they have large gaps leave. So I think before we get into where that can go or where it has gone historically, we should look at that case and say, how realistic is that? What is the probability of that? And I think that if one was to look at that 10 years ago or five years ago, most people would be surprised. It shouldn't be surprising for anyone who watches the cycle. Like the January 6th incidents, people thought were shocking. But if you watch the cycle, they're not shocking at all, or if you extrapolate. So you think that's unrealistic? Listen, it certainly doesn't look unrealistic today. You know, I tend to be an optimist and, you know, keep waiting for some 
some strong leaders to emerge. But you're right, when you, you've got the problem we have is not so much the leaders, is the polarization of society, right? Right. And in a democracy, people tend to get the, the, the leaders they want or the leaders they deserve. So it's an interesting and a disturbing, and I think that one of the real values of your book is to be a wake-up call. And I look at the last 200 years of history in the United States, and we've been through some pretty challenging times, right? And, and yes, we, but uh, if you look at these measures of the political gaps and, and so on. We, we've come out the other side. But, and so we've gone through these. So, you know, we've, we, the United States of America, has gone through, you know, the, the Great Depression, World War II, and so on. But let, let's talk about the third factor, and this is where you and I have really got to know each other best through China, right? We, we both spent a lot of time in China. We're disturbed by this relationship. It is the most consequential bilateral relationship. There's a unusual amount of tension right now here. And, uh, you know, it looks in many ways like it's spinning out of control. So let's now talk. You know, we've talked about Graham Allison's book, the Thucydides trap and the history shows that when there's a dominant power and a rising power, they almost always come to blows, right? And I, I was talking with someone the other day and he said, well, what about the UK and the US? And I said, you don't know their history. They burned our White House in 1812, right? And so, so history's got some, some tough lessons there. But talk about China and how you see that entering into the mix here. Well, in a nutshell, I've been going to China since 1984. Since I've been going, its per capita income has increased by 26 times. Its life expectancy has increased by 10 years on average. Its poverty rate measured by you know being hungry has gone from 88% to less than 1%. And there's no doubt that it is a force for lots of reasons. And I studied in this cycle of studying cycles, I studied the dynasties of China, starting in the Tang dynasty, which is around 600. And China has always been number one or two in the world. They have a lot going for it that makes it a productive, competitive, smart society. And so they have a population that's four times, more than four times, the American population. So if per capita income equals in China half what it is in the United States. They will be twice the size economically. And the more economic power you have, the more power you have of all different kinds, the more power for technology or military or anything. And so it's a destiny almost, an inevitability, that what we've seen here, extrapolating it, means that this is happening. And if you have a dominant world power, then increasingly they set the rules and so on. So, um, so there's a competition. There's, there are five types of competitions or wars. And we can call them competitions or wars. A trade war or competition, a technology war, a geopolitical influence war, a capital war, and a, a military war. Maybe military competition, maybe you don't shoot each other and kill each other, but there's certainly a, um, a, a competition in building the best militaries 
um, in various ways. And they're all very competitive and they're getting stronger uh, faster. So that's the picture. That's the picture. And then we have the Thucydides trap. So there's a, the way the game is played. At the end of the day, the competition will depend on how strong we are. And that has to do with, don't view China as, as much that adversary. If we're strong, financially, politically, inventively, technologically, we will be healthy domestically and internally. So that's how I, I look at this. You and I look at it exactly the same way. You know, that when I talk to people who, who just keep pointing their finger at China, I say, listen, are, are we going to be playing the game or are we going to be playing the ball, right? And if, if we play our game properly here and we do the things we need to do to get our finances in order and get our political system working the way it's going to work, we're going to be a major power for a long time, no matter what China does. But aside from that, which is the big issue, okay, being strong, if you're being strong domestically, I mean, they, if China understands one thing, they understand strength. We need to be strong domestically. But what else does America need to do to minimize the risk that the relationship spins out of control and how we deal with China? How do you look at that? Because I, I think you agree with me that Often when I talk with people in our country who will point their finger and say China's doing this or that or the other bad thing, and in many instances, I agree with them. Most instances, I agree with them. And then I say, what do you want to do, right? And then when I look at what our response is, often it's it hurts us more than it hurts China, right? We end up going so far that we we don't play to our strengths. If we, for instance, try to sequester too much of our technology. And then we don't participate in the global economic system and we don't set the standards and we don't set the rules and we don't lead and it ultimately hurts us. So I don't, don't mean to give you my lecture, but Ray, talk a bit about how you view US-China relations and what makes sense from the standpoint of the, of the United States. What do you think we should be doing? And beginning with getting our own house in order, of course. So I'll start with that, but then in terms of how we deal with China. Anybody who studied history saw that there's a phase where people are bold and, and they say, I'm going to go to war, I'm going to fight, and that the wars are so terrible that they all regret the terribleness of the war from the internal fight. So it seems to me that the most important thing is to understand what the irreconcilable differences are and to put the number one priority, whether it's internally with each other or externally with each other, is a way to negotiate, to put not having a war and think hard about those particular issues. And they're complicated. They're particularly complicated sometimes in a democracy because there's also different views. But let's say if we were to take something like China, which is a uh, Taiwan issue, and so on. A lot of thought has got to be given to that issue about how. Now, I, I'm not the one who's going to say how to be dealing with that, but that's like an example of an existential issue in which if you could work that out 
that would significantly reduce the risk of a military war. And then, then you're dealing with the other four types of wars, which are basically competitions. And if you're dealing with competitions, then you just have to be the most competitive entity. And Ray, I think if you look at history, you're right. A very few great powers that want to go to war. So they end up stumbling into war, sleepwalking into war because of some combination of miscommunication, accident, escalation, or whatever. So to me, the most important thing is to have communication, right? To have right communication, to, to identify what the issues are, the potential conflicts. I also think that there are shared interests with great powers. We have shared interests with China, right? Mutual interest. We both need global stability. We have the common threat of climate change. We need a global order that works, right? Plenty of areas where we need to work together. And so I think that's really key. Certainly. Um, to put number one, successful coexistence and, and avoiding the war and so on, and then dealing with the uncompromisables to try to make them not the basis of a war. And you talked about that. You and I know that there are so many great misunderstandings, Yeah, just misunderstandings. And in many cases, no interest in really understanding the other side. Yep, because, because then you get back to the politics and the polarization, right? That we talked about in the dysfunction where you want to fight. You know, you don't lose your job to technology or you don't lose it to competition because it's, you lose it to something that's unfair. And, and along those lines, like, for example, nowadays, it's not easy to publicly try to bring about understanding of the other side because of that war mentality. In other words, if I know myself, when I'm trying to bring about mutual understanding, I could be perceived as being on the other side. And it's almost like un understanding doesn't have to be acceptance. But when you get into that kind of environment, it is that polarity kind of environment in which there's not a desire to understand the other side. When you're in a competition, okay, and you're in a competition, and it's a tough competition, I think it's hard to win that competition unless you understand the other side and you understand what makes them tick because it all starts with domestic politics, right? In the U.S., the domestic politics are in overriding the domestic situation, domestic economics, domestic politics. In China, it's the same thing. And right. so if, if you're figuring out how to deal with someone, whether it's North Korea or whether it's an ally or whatever, you know, you could be an enemy, it could be an ally. It really helps if you understand what's going on there and sure does. Let's end on a positive note because in the final section of your book, you provide some very, very useful principles for navigating the future. Which ones would you emphasize as being particularly important for our political leaders? And, and so I want to do that. And then I, I, I want to 
also talk a little bit about our younger listeners who will be beginning their careers in the midst of this changing world order and what you recommend for them. But let's start with the principles for uh, for, for uh, world leaders. W what do you think are the most important ones? To produce good outcomes, there are good outcomes for the country as a whole. And then there are good outcomes for the individuals, even if their country as a whole doesn't do so well. And I think it's important to understand both. What? How does the individual do okay in a threatening environment as well as the other? So I, both of those occur to me. In the United States, the system that we have is based on a democracy, which is based on elements of compromise to be able to work that way. So bipartisanship, if I was president of the United States, I'd have a, a bipartisan cabinet. Or uh, if I was trying to find solutions, I'd take those of the left and those of the right and make sure I pick the smart ones and have them go off and do something like a Manhattan Project and come up with a agreed upon common economic plan that is the plan for the country that is agreed to, not one side trying to beat the other, and then have those moderates sell the more extremists. You need a middle in order not to have a civil war of some form. You, you, need, you need that. So we, it's almost fighting the nature of the conflict, which is, will you fight for my cause type of thing? So you need that for the system as a whole thoughtful disagreement for the individual. And that, by the way, that's also true internationally. For the individual, it is really to know how to handle oneself financially and in light of those various circumstances. The way I look at it is like investing. I almost think of two portfolios. The one portfolio is just a a basic portfolio that assures that in any case, whatever the situation is, I'm going to be have something there to be protected in the worst case situation. So if you had printing of money or, or even whatever it is that you have uh, those types of protections in place as part of that, almost hedges against the worst case scenario. And then you go about building and diversification well is very, very important. So it's not like somebody's gonna pick the winner. Is China or the United States gonna be the winner and how do you invest there? The, the key is not to have any too many eggs in one basket and to be able to uh, diversify well. And I think staying minimum amounts in cash and realizing that cash is a risky asset because of the depreciated buying power it has because inflation is much higher. So, and then even recognizing that locations may change. Your environment, where you're living, you live in Chicago. Each of those places can change. And just being attuned to that and realizing those circumstances, I think, are important. So those are the things that come to mind. Yep. I want to thank you very much. So you've given us a wake-up call on some very important issues. And I agree with you that the best way 
to make sure that the worst things don't happen is to, to understand that they're possible if you make some wrong decisions and to shine a light on them and, and take corrective actions. So again, thank you very much. This has been a terrific conversation and I appreciate it greatly. Well, thank you very much for um, helping me to pass this along. I hope people will find it helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.